Stranger Things, or Critical Role. In the last couple of years, D&D and other TTRPGs owe a lot to these two properties, with fans citing them as being responsible for the genre's renaissance. But fans can't seem to agree on which show was more important for D&D, and we can't decide if either fandom is truly right. So, how did D&D get so popular? We decided to take a look at the timeline to find out on this episode of The Return of the Movie. Hello and welcome everyone. This is The Return of the Movie. I'm Ben and I am here with a couple friends of mine. Why don't we all introduce ourselves real quick? I guess I'll go first. Uh, hi, I'm Jose. I do edits and sound and assist with die time. I'm Matt from Los Angeles, California. And when you last saw me, I was arguing that Suicide Squad was a better movie than Power of the Dog. That's, Matt, that is not how we want to lead in a podcast where people <laughs> listen about movie opinions, sir. Shame on you. Shame. I mean, Although I, I, I did watch the video and you made some very valid points. So you guys should go ahead and watch that. It's in one of the corners, like right up this way. We're here. And as you could probably tell, we're going to be talking about uh, something a little bit different than the normal mo- movie reviews. We're going to be talking about something very special to many of our hearts, our hobbies, and something that has been making its ways very notably into the world of the pop culture. And yes, we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons today. Um, and more importantly, just why the hell we can talk about Dungeons and Dragons without being considered a bunch of fucking nerds anymore. No, no, we're still fucking yeah, nerds. Yeah, we're still fucking nerds. Still are, and okay. we'll still get called nerds. Nothing's changed. It, uh, I, I think today we are here to argue the opposite of that. And you know what? Just to start things off, um, Jose, I have some questions for you. Of course. Um, Every, anything D&D related, you always got to that. I got to go. I got to ask you things about Dungeons & Dragons, sir. Um, so I guess my first one for you is uh, when did you actually first start playing Dungeons & Dragons? Oh, when? Shoot, damn. Um... Was it 2018 or 2017? I don't know. Um, I first played. It was like I get. I was given a pre-character generated sheet because yeah. I didn't know anything about it at all. Uh, we literally hung out in the Boba Tea place and uh, we played just a, a quick Wait, game there. Y- your first Dungeons Dragons game was in a Boba Tea shop. Yeah, it was the only place we had that was like, hey, let's all meet here for because it was like a it had a space in the back for us. So like, yeah. Matt, when was your first time playing? Actually, 2016. It was. It wasn't actually D and D. It was a Numenara campaign, which is basically steampunk D and D. Um, yeah, I we were playing that at my friend's house, but then I dropped out to do my uh, LARPing job. You're uh, okay. You now have to expand upon that. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm. T- I I worked as an actor in a haunted house for a long time. Um, and I wasn't the type that would just jump out and say boo at people. I would actually do like interactive skits and role plays, different characters uh, in different scenarios for them. So I like even outside of uh, acting, which is my main uh, discipline, I guess I've, I've been doing like role playing type stuff for a while, even if it wasn't in the vein of it being a board game. Yeah. So, uh, and this kind of goes into a second thing that I think is a very important framing de- device for this podcast. So, we are talking about Dungeons and Dragons, that's true, but really the overarching piece that we're talking about in truth is actually tabletop games as a whole. So, I think all of us have run into this issue. Um, so, I, as our subscribers know, I run Call of Cthulhu for Die Time, um, which everyone here has participated in. Um, my girlfriend's first ever role- tabletop game 
was Call of Cthulhu for this reason, because I really wanted to run it, and she, like, humored me, I guess, and now she now she's fucking loves it and like is wait that was her first uh, yeah like yeah, our campaign her... is her first really yeah uh call of cthulhu oh. was her first tabletop game uh but she runs into this issue where when she's trying to explain what her sunday game night is she says it's call of cthulhu and people go what's that and then she like tries to explain it and they go i still don't understand she goes it's dungeons and dragons it's just dungeons and dragons but instead it's hp lovecraft and then they mm-hmm. they get it after that, and then they usually like either leave it alone, depending on who they are, or ask more questions if they're a fucking nerd. Um, By the way, um, for those of you interested, it, uh, I'm actually also part of that campaign, and Ben threw me in jail. Well, I, you know what, you rolled really poorly, and sometimes that's just what happens, Matthew. Um, hey, at least you didn't end up in a psych ward. Oh, he's, actually, he, he is in a psych ward. <laughs> It's jail psych ward. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. It's bad. Digressing back to the main conversation <laughs> at the moment. I guess the it's important for us to note this because wherever Dungeons and Dragons is is essentially where tabletop is. Um the only time that this was really different was when 4th edition came out. I think with this now it, understanding where we are what all of our backgrounds are now we should get into the main question of the day and yes there was a lot of preamble to get here but why do we think dungeons and dragons is now so ingrained in pop culture um i think honestly that it was like i don't know there's like a layer of pop culture whatever but like i think like dungeons and dragons always had like this small little like fan base like little of course you know meaning yeah it had a niche as much as it is now and like, as it com- as it comes to a realm of like celebrities that are basically like nerds, like the topic of Dungeons and Dragons will probably come up every now and then, and then it just kind of like you know spells them like, hey, these people uh, like this game that I've always been interested in or like into, and yeah. then it just kind of just starts to boom itself up. Yeah, it's it's it helps with normalization, is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I think especially with the prof- proliferation of the internet. A lot of the stuff has become more accessible to get into, so it's easier to find other people who are more accepting of stuff like D&D, but I also think that it's um, just nerd culture in general has kind of become more and more mainstream. So, like, superhero movies are the dominant force cinematically, for better or for worse. We have a million Star Wars things coming out. There's always more Star Trek coming out. Lord of the Rings created a fantasy boom in the early 2000s, and now fantasy is more accepted as a genre. And so you have a lot of once-niche things like comic books and fantasy coming into the mainstream in the course of the past 10 to 15 years. Um, and so I think D&D is kind of riding that wave a little bit. Although I'd, I'd still say just because like we're referring to the entire genre as D&D still shows how niche it is. Yeah. But, um, but it's definitely not as like... I mean, I'm sure you're going to layer in some Big Bang, Simpsons, etc. quotes over this. It's not the death sentence of nerds who are never going to get laid ever. This isn't the 80s like with those stereotypes anymore. Like a bunch of teenage girls? Or are going to play D&D like a bunch of teenage boys who are never going to have sex with those teenage girls? But I think it's actually kind of funny because with some other shows or like even other games, a lot of the time the, the base groundwork will be based on D- Dungeons & Dragons. So like with the whole like 
different kind of races and like fantasy elements. A lot of the elements will yeah. originate from like the so, original Dungeons. Well, Dragons. it's it, it goes it goes to Tolkien. Tolkien. It, it, go, it yeah. goes it, it's, it goes back further than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it is Tolkienism. That being said, you will notice that um, Dungeons and Dragons races have in pop culture become ubiquitous with um, past Tolkienism. So one really important note um, in pop culture is actually the Dragonborn from Skyrim. That term first shows up in Dungeons and Dragons with the race of Dragonborn, which are the humanoid dragon figures. Um, now, of course, Elder Scrolls and Bethesda have always borrowed from Dungeons and Dragons, but very much flipped pieces of the lore on its own head and then redid kind of everything from the ground up. But you're going to see those influences that aren't from Tolkien, but actually from Dungeons and Dragons, like first or second edition. And Tolkienism is also weird because Tolkien, like, didn't, he was very much a pioneer in what he was doing as far as creating all these races. And in reality, he only made like about like a dozen of the recognizable fantasy races that are very prevalent now. Video so. games are another um, thing that became super mainstream. So like uh, Elden Ring or Skyrim or it's like we have competitive esport gaming and so it's become a big like influencer thing. So it's it's become cool to be a gamer. Not to mention Like the, you have um, NBA players tweeting out uh, their gaming links all the time. So it's like it's become fucking cool to be a gamer. And like how there's even like various video game adaptations of different Dungeons and Dragons stories as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah, and all this is to say that this is where we are now. The we we can all agree that the nerd sphere has very much turned into a mainstream thing, and I think that to an extent, both of you are very much right about this. I do think that there's a lot of other elements that we're about to go into. But there is an element of normalization, and there's also an element of the fact that nerd culture has made its way into being pop culture, as usually what happens with counterculture over time, because counterculture always turns into pop culture when you give it about a decade or two. So, now moving on to the actual subject of time, let's get into the motherfucking timeline. So, to start things out, 1971, Chainmail was released and um this is considered a role-playing game but it's a little bit different matt you did some research on this uh could you give us a little tidbit um essentially it's kind of like a grid-based role game with, with that is very very heavily used on um miniatures it, it it's actually derived from an earlier 1967 game called uh siege of bodenberg which is a medieval-based war game, um, once again based with uh, miniatures. But a lot of these are based on, like, almost Risk-style board games. Yeah. Um, where it's very much about positioning and using different units. Um, there is, with Chainmail, there is a fantasy element to it. And it was pretty successful in its uh, circulation. Because um, when it first came out, it started selling, like, a couple hundred, like, a hundred copies a month. Uh, which for then was success. But a lot of the illustration model designs that they used were, again, derived from Tolkien. Uh, and yeah. Tolkien kind of had a huge influence, like, especially in the 70s, you see a lot of uh, Tolkien influence. Um, so, like, I'm going to talk about music for a second. Can I talk about prog rock? Now? Oh, we're going to jump into the prog rock. Technically speaking, yeah, that's our 1960s slot. So go ahead. Let's rewinding time for those of you who don't know what prog rock is uh 
It's essentially rock music that didn't want to just be influenced by the 12-bar blues rock and roll stuff that was dominant in the 50s and 60s. Um, so think Beatles, Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, like pe- people like that, um, or Chuck Berry. Uh, but prog rock is takes more influences from jazz and classical structures, and the lyrics tend to be a little bit more philosophical, and sometimes uh, the lyrics tell complete stories. So uh, an example of this is Rush's 2112, where it's a 20-minute song that is basically a... Uh, a rock opera. Um, but one of the facets of prog rock is that there were always philosophical and sometimes fantastical elements to the lyrics. Uh, so lots of Tolkien influence. Rush, for example, on the Hemispheres album, sings about Greek god myths. Um, Genesis sings... Uh, Genesis, Peter Gabriel Genesis, sings about medieval concepts on selling and glued by the pound. Um I mean, they're they're even playing a fucking lute on that album, <laughs> um, and, and this is something that uh, was not like pro- it was very prevalent in prog rock. But we also can see very obvious elements of it. And unless you've been living under a rock, Led Zeppelin quotes the Lord of the Rings all the fucking time. They quote Tolkien all the time, and except they always sang about how much they get laid. So, well, I guess, yeah, you know what? You can balance out, like, talk about Tolkien in the 70s with also, like, clearly the cool guys can't also be the nerds, right? Right, Jose? I feel like you're attacking me. I don't know why. And so, and then um, also in the 70s, you have those early animated Lord of the Rings films when those came out. Oh, gosh. Um, um, So, Tolkien kind of had a fingerprints all over niche 1970s uh, nerd culture so this gets into the next bit this game chainmail 1971 we've established that this is one of the earliest fantasy games that was tabletop miniature based however we would all agree even though it has the rpg label it was not necessarily a role-playing game it was mostly a war game a lot more like what we would now compare to modern day warhammer so then 1974 comes along and we get DD first edition except DD first edition was not the first game to come out also 1974 we get mar baker's empire of the petal throne which is actually the first tabletop rpg it's my understanding that this was a very simple game you had very limited lore limited mechanics and it was just trying to tell you a story that you could sort of play through and had open-endedness that being said at the same time gary gygax's dungeons and dragons first edition comes out and completely blows it out of the water and becomes this pop storm over the course of many years and then we get here and everything's looking good and of course we have this whole prog rock renaissance Tolkien is being used by Led Zeppelin and everything and we're finishing out this era and then 1980 comes along and now we have what we all know as the satanic panic well uh, let me set the stage with the satanic panic so you um the satanic panic was the worry that media various pieces of media music movies games etc were corruptive influences on society. There was an interesting series of documentaries made on metal music, for example, and they were called the... uh, It's a two-parter documentary called The Decline of the Western Civilization. Um, And it's... And while those documentaries don't 
have the thesis that it's causing that. It's kind of like playing off of that. In December 1982, a man named Richard Delmer Boyer murdered an elderly couple by stabbing them multiple times. The defense used was that he saw the movie Halloween 2 under the influence of PCP, marijuana, and others. So you have a couple of different 80s panics right there. Drugs um, and corruptive influences of media um, and alternative media. Um, so like horror movies like Halloween 2. But the rest of the satanic panic was just like anything that wasn't considered, I guess... Good Christian be- values, as some people might say. Um, but how this ties into D&D is that in 1988, Chris Pritchard murdered his stepfather, Leith von Stein, in order to inherit the family's fortune, which they made from being a dry clean chain owner. He did this with two accomplices, and in 1990, there was a pan—during the 1990 trial about all of this, there was a panic where uh, they blamed D&D for corrupting his mind and how um, he and his two accomplices would play D&D and ritualistically enact the murders before they did it. So D&D very much got got tied in with that tile. It was total nonsense. And uh, all three accomplices later got paroled for becoming good boy, born-again Christians, but that's that's a different story for a different time. Um, And you you would actually see this kind of these kind of reactions later on with uh I just had this thought, uh, Columbine. But one of the things that people latched onto with that while they were trying to search for meanings and motives and all that was that they, the the two kids who did it liked heavy music. Like, if you go back and you watch those uh, documentaries that were done or the, uh, more appropriately, the propaganda hit pieces that were made to go after Dungeons & Dragons, some of which referring to this actual murder trial, You'll see these really weird sort of acted out things that uh, the entire time you're watching this, it's you see this kid that's just like, I didn't want to do it, but the dungeon master made me. And the dungeon master is not being depicted as like this, like we're going to go into the nerd stereotypes, but he's not being depicted as like the D&D nerd sitting behind a screen with a bunch of like beard and like very unkempt. No, instead he's depicted as this standing, like very pale teenager or like young adult who's just constantly always staring down at you like this with his chin straight. And they, telling you no you must actually kill and he's like i don't want to kill but then he does it anyway as if somehow dungeons and dragons is a spell you cast on your friends in order to make them do your will i can't get you fuckers to follow the plot in most of the live streams (laughs) y'all just go in your own fucking direction that's every game at the same time as all of this the nerdum and the nerd stereotypes are really being pinned on people and there's no direct proof of this, however, it is known speculation, and after studying media for long enough, I wouldn't be surprised by this. Um, a lot of the stereotypes that you hear about people, period, are designed to oppress. Um, and the Dungeons & Dragons nerd stereotypes, it's no mistake that they started existing at the same time as the Satanic Panic. Well, that, that was also... Um... That also extends beyond D&D. So, like, it was, like, the late 70s and early 80s when the whole high school jock nerd yes. preppy distinction kind of got 
manifested, I guess, for lack of a better term. And you, you have, like, the Breakfast Club, which is kind of a deconstruction of that trope, but also kind of reinforces it at the same time. Basically, any movie set in high school in the 80s, Weird Science or Revenge of the Nerds, both of which kind of, like... those movies don't age well, man. But you also have these stereotypes that just lasted for a long time. I'm telling you, like, basically until, like, the late, mid-2010s, anything set in high school had that distinction. And so you, you have these stereotypes being reinforced again and again and again and again by a generation that graduated high school in the late 70s or early 80s. And just these nerd stereotypes kind of bleeded over to other things. So... Uh, we're gonna be talking about Big Bang Theory. Yeah, no, we're we're about to jump right into that. Um, real quick, I do want to met I do have a couple notable things that just happened within this time period before we zoom by. Um, the first of which is something that some of our commenters actually pointed out in Jose and I's Vox Machina coverage. Vox Machina was not the first adaptation of a Dungeons and Dragons game brought to the small screen. This actually goes to the 1990 anime Record of the Lotus War. This is pretty big in the fact that not a lot of people even knew that this was done, and Critical Role was getting credit by uh, uneducated people like myself as being one of the first people to actually get to pull this off. Um, That being said, they do get the credit for being the first popular group in the first Western media. Um... An important thing to note in the 90s is, yes, this happens, and it goes to record the Lotus War, but it is very worth noting that in 1990s, anime was not accessible. You had to essentially be able to know where it was going to be stocked at a VHS store in order to even access it. That being said, it's going to take a very long time for anime to even become popularized within western media so then 1993 we start seeing a lot more of the D players as nerds and not satan people coming up a lot more and one of the immediate notes of this is the homer goes to college episodes of one of the, the goat episodes of the simpsons by the way one of the best episodes of that show uh, but yeah it's like it kind of tied it into just being like total nerds who don't have lives and don't have friends kind of thing, which is kind of a contradiction given the nature of D&D. But yeah, yeah I think that's like one, <laughs> that's one of the questions that I actually, I think I asked my dad when I was a kid. Like, if they're all nerds that can't socialize, why are they in a room together? And my dad doesn't understand Dungeons and Dragons. My dad doesn't understand any of this. At this point now, um, tabletop RPGs are kind of having to live under the radar. And then somehow, a movie gets made. And I am now talking about the 2000s Dungeons and Dragons films released by New Line Cinema. In a faraway world. All people deserve to be free and equal. The child is not fit to govern an empire. The forces of darkness. You can control dragons. With the dragon army at my command. 10%. 10%? On Rotten Tomatoes. It's got a 10% on Rotten it's Tomatoes? It's got a 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh my god. Okay. Um. Well, it's bad. I had some emotions watching it. Uh, however, I, I just because for raw reactions, um, Matt, Jose, 
What were your instant thoughts when you saw this trailer? It exists. There's two direct-to-video sequels. It's getting rebooted in 2023. Yeah. Uh, Those are my only thoughts. It exists. It's part of the fantasy kick of the early 2000s. That is true. Although it came out before The Lord of the Rings. Yes, but it came out after Braveheart, and you could probably really credit Braveheart to kicking that particular that is off. fair. Because like, you have like Braveheart and Gladiator came out in 2000, and, and both of those won Best Picture. And then you have Lord of the Rings, and then Kingdom of Heaven, Troy, etc. You get it. Yeah. Um, that is fair. Jose, what were your just general thoughts on that masterpiece? It's a 2000s movie. Like New Line Cinema? Come on. They could... Yeah, I, I mean, that that's kind of the fun thing is like New Line Cinema means nothing. Um, also, like it's the inner world bit right at the beginning just gets me every fucking time that I'm looking at like a movie from that era. I feel like Chicken Little did it, and that's the only other movie I can think of off the top of my head. But I know I'm pretty sure Titanic had one of those types of trailers. Didn't this podcast used to start with that? This podcast did used to start with In a World. It was Abraham's voice. In a world dominated by prequels, sequels, and reboots. So that happens, and then uh, we end up with a major gap in our timeline. Everything's kind of staying at this standstill. The Satanic Panic is no longer at its height for Dungeons & Dragons, but certainly still exists. There is still a moral ambiguity around it, as well as the really bad othering and stereotyping that is associated with the people who play it. Now we're in the mid-2000s and the internet is blooming, and we're having things like chat rooms opening up, and now we have to talk about the fact that 4chan exists. And now we have to talk about the fact that there are a lot of really toxic elements that are coming into these tabletop spaces around what is now referred to in the tabletop community as the old guard. This is essentially calling out the old heads for a lot of like, I wanted, I liked my Dungeons and Dragons better when it was racist. How dare Wizards of the Coast update a couple things that were, you know, very racist. This is also where you start running into the intersection of women playing the game and not feeling safe within the actual tabletop spaces. And a lot of this also manifests in it having difficulties finding groups. It has a lot to do with the fact that this was so ostracized that you start ending up with kind of the incel pipeline and how that network all feeds together. Um, so at this point, Dungeons and Dragons is just going further and further down this rabbit hole as a hobby. Um, and we only start in 2011 hearing about it in kind of a good light. Um, so in 2011, we have a community show run by Dan Harmon, and it airs its advanced Dungeons and Dragons episode. It is showing Dungeons and Dragons in not a corny light and is actually challenging a lot of these elements. And then in 2011, another thing starts happening with Dan Harmon as well. Harmon, the Harmontown podcast shows up. Um, now, most people know Dan Harmon in this world for um, A, showrunner Rick and Morty, and B, Harmon Quest. Harmon Quest actually is predated by Harmontown, which is just a podcast where he talks because he is a white man with a podcast, I say, now closing my eyes and feeling regret. He starts this podcast, I think it's episode eight, that they 
challenge someone to throw them a Dungeons & Dragons game and he comes back the next episode, they drunkenly play a game of Dungeons & Dragons on the podcast and people love it. That's where the root of Harmon Quest comes from. But it's also this moment where in this more niche, specifically celebrity following culture, that we start seeing Dungeons and Dragons taking a more prevalent role. That's like one of the earlier examples that you could find of even live play tabletop RPGs in a podcast form. And it would just be for like 30 minutes at the end of the show. 2012, Roll20 is launched as a digital role-playing platform. That being said, we see these like couple moves now going in a direction that are showing Dungeons and Dragons as a positive element. But then um, 2013, we get another major pop culture factor to this, and we have the Big Bang Theory. So the Big Bang Theory actually features Dungeons and Dragons in a number of episodes, but I picked this one because... Um, there's a plot line about Sheldon and his girlfriend not being able to be sexually intimate with each other, and so they decide to have their D&D characters have sex by proxy at the end of the episode. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the Big Bang Theory, and so anything that the Big Th- Bang Theory brings up is kind of associating nerd culture with these very, 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 very bad stereotypes. And so it kind of has a tendency of dragging everything it mentions down with it. I will give them credit. They research their science pretty well. Anytime they make a science joke, it's very on point for the people that actually understand the science that's going on. Um, But when they are actually using the culture that they are showcasing and basing this off of and who hypothetically is their fan base, they're not making fun of it in good faith usually. Yeah, that show kind of just associates anything with science, anything with interest in comics, movies, or fantasy, or gaming on more than just a surface level as weird and bad and you're not a normal person and you deserve to be made fun of is kind of the attitude from that the show comes from and so that's that's like one of the things that pissed a lot of people off with that show um, and so by by showing plot lines like that around D is kind of how like it just further reinforces certain stereotypes now we have a fourth edition coming out in 2014 um, excuse me, 5th edition coming out in 2014. Did I say 4th edition? Yes, you did. I did say 4th edition. Excuse me, 5th edition has now come out in 2014. And this is what people, when they play Dungeons and Dragons, this is what they play now. Um, and say what you will about 5th edition, it has many flaws as far as this game design is concerned, but it is ultimately the easiest Dungeons and Dragons has ever been. It was designed specifically so that new players could get into it without feeling overwhelmed. Which is saying a fucking lot because it's not the easiest system out there by far. But it makes things easy enough and is more marketable than what they had going on in 4E. And this now comes into the forefront with Critical Role airing its first episodes in 2015. And we all know exactly how successful that's going to turn out. Harmon Quest is 2016. And Stranger Things are 2016. Stranger Things, I know at least, is what a lot of people will come up to me and say, Stranger Things is what popularized D&D. And I just don't know if I believe that. 
I don't know that I buy that, but I do I do think that, um, like I said, we're, we're at a point where 2016, okay, so Infinity War's a year off, but the MCU has fully established itself as the dominant force in movies by that point. I, I just think it's like nerd culture officially became mainstream. We had a lot of 80s nostalgia happening right around that time, so it wasn't just Stranger Things, you had it. Star Wars was getting rebooted, and they were only following sequels to the 80s movies. You have Halloween getting rebooted. You have Ghostbusters getting getting a sequel, because I think the, the, uh, the initial reboot was 2016, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So you have comics, sci-fi, fantasy, and just all, like kind of blowing up and becoming the dominant forces in pop culture. And so I think D&D was just kind of riding that wave. And so I don't think Stranger Things made it popular, but I do think it normalized it by associating it with characters that we like and root for instead of characters that we want to laugh at. That's actually a very good point. It's one of the first examples that you can, that I can think of where the main characters play D&D. At this point in 2016, between Harmon Quest, which was very heavily advertised to at least comedy people and people that were consuming comedy media um and then stranger things we do see an active effort in media that is normalizing this in 2018 critical role finishes campaign one and launches campaign two and then in 2022 the legend of vox machina airs so the question is, is how did this get fully normalized? And Jose, you made a point at the top of the podcast. There's a lot of celebrities that talk about their experience with this. With with the fantasy element alone, like obvious ones like Henry Cavill. Yeah. Who's, who's known to play World of Warcraft. Um, Aubrey Plaza as well. Uh, big nerd about it. And then, of course, with uh, Critical Role, all these uh, voice actors, which a lot of people recognize from various video games and TV shows. They help boosted them up because one, a lot of people just like like them and yeah. their voices and what they can do. So like them bringing their characters to life through just the voice alone is what helped the podcast boom up and then really just helped spread with like the whole D and D influence basically to the viewers, as friends, and other people that they know and just to get get a share with it. Harmon Quest also had like a lot of celebrities on as guests because that was kind of the appeal is that it's you have the main cast with a different guest each time. Um, and so you have Paul F. Tompkins, Kamel Nanjiani, Aubrey Plaza, Chelsea Peretti, people like that. You also have David Benioff and D.B. Weiss have also come out and said uh, how influential it was to them. Now, you can say what you said about Game of Thrones season seven and eight. But, you know, they created some of the best seasons of television we've ever seen. You have Jon Favreau, who is overseeing both MCU and Star Wars duties, doing it. You have Matthew Lillard. You have Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Stephen Colbert has... Or Colbert, I think, is how it's actually pronounced. You have Vin Diesel, who has, like, the ultimate tough guy look, but he loves D&D. And we're not even talking about The Rock, who was this wrestler, who was, like, this wrestler... He played football in both, like, at Miami, which had one of the biggest, baddest images around its fo- football program. And, I mean, it's, it's Miami. And so he has this image of just, like, the shining, hulking example of mascul- cool masculinity. But he likes D&D. There's a lot of very talented individuals that just start coming out of the woodwork within this period, mind you talking about Dungeons and Dragons and really like most of the interviews that you can find about the stuff are post 2015 2016 
that's when it starts coming up. And the reason why is because Stranger Things gets talked about. And Stranger Things did a very brilliant thing where they didn't make it a Dungeons & Dragons show. However, they would name so many things from Dungeons & Dragons. The kids' imagination was all tied to Dungeons & Dragons. And they would use shit like the Demigorgon to describe this one monster. And then, of course, if you know Dungeons & Dragons lore, you go, the Demigorgon is way scarier than what they actually named. But to their imaginations, it was just as scary as the Demigorgon. And it did this neat little thing where people would Google things and be interested. And it would start peaking imagination. So with that, we established the normalization. I have one last thing to bring up. We have to talk about the toxic nerd culture and how that was also being deconstructed with the incel conversation at the same time as all of this. This is one of the more insidious things about these stereotypes um, is that it kind of just boxing people in is that people kind of started to believe it. And so it creates both this like false like victimhood narrative, but it's also like when you just reinforce Star Trek and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and etc. as these things that sweaty, racist, overweight white guys who don't know how to talk to people, more specifically women, and then they buy into it, is when you get into some pretty dangerous territory. And so it just kind of like, again, funneled nerd to incel pipeline. I don't think we, I don't think we ever actually talked about this on the podcast, but like I... I remember growing up because I was all of these things. Um, I, well, I also, a nerd, not not a, not a racist, overweight, white uh, <laughs> incel. Uh, but in high school, I was very much on the track to like going down into that really deep, ugly world if I was not careful. And like Matt, you're absolutely right. You buy into it when you're being told this over and over again. And at a certain point when you box people in and tell them what they are, they get really angry and double down. And this is actually, um, this is the reason why they tell you when you're confronting people that are racist, you don't call them racist, even if they're actually a fucking racist. Because the, I think the other insidious thing about some of these stereotypes is that they're incredibly exclusionary. It kind of gives off to the impression that people that don't necessarily belong to whatever demographic is being portrayed is that it's not for them so we're we're talking about gatekeeping at this moment yes um so nerd culture was kind of seen as just a guy thing for like a nerdy weird guy in the corner thing for a long time and there's no way girls could ever like superheroes or comic books or DD. and if you like those things you're never going to get a girl Exactly. Despite the fact that we opened this podcast with Ben talking about his girlfriend playing with him. <laughs> I was just at a wedding. I was just at, I am not making this up. I was just at a wedding where they played Zelda walking down the aisle. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. Now we have all these pieces on here. So the question is, is, is there still any one thing that we think contributed to D&D becoming a part of pop culture? I think just like the the real love and like passion that people have for fantasy elements as a whole because um like with game of thrones stuff like that like that yeah. definitely helped popularize but like you know dragons knights and yeah like magic and stuff like that and this can stem from other stuff so like from world of warcraft which even though i know a lot of these have like D influences yeah um a lot of people will also just like 
put fantasy as its own element just as a whole for media and i think with dnd when um essentially people can play these fantasy elements to their heart's content and like you know have the mindset of being in it yeah it definitely helps with uh boosting it and and popularizing it yeah well i think like i said it's just a lot of things got normalized for the mainstream over the course of the past 10 years that had mainly just been seen as like niche stuff i don't know star wars is more accessible now the marvel dc um so i don't think it was any like one factor i think a lot of nerd culture being normalized and and it's at least what like i I will give the big bang theory this it introduced a lot of aspects of nerd culture to people even if it didn't present it in a good light it kind of had conversations around them if nothing else um and so there was a lot of i don't know i just think a lot of things got normalized and then D D rode that wave so i actually have a combination answer i agree with both of you however for me, what I think the real root of this is, is yes, it is passion and yes, it is definitely normalization. But I think that the thing that we're kind of overlooking is who was making our media during a lot of this time period, starting from the aughts to now. And the answer is it was the 80s nerds who grew up playing these games. Dan Harmon. Just about every celebrity that you just listed, those are the celebrities, those are the actors. When we're talking about people like Dan Harmon, the people that actually make the media that we watch, or Jon Favreau, those are the people that write our stories, and I would be flabbergasted, absolutely shook to my core, if Jon Favreau did not take writing elements that he may have encountered while playing Dungeons & Dragons, or story elements that he may have encountered while playing Dungeons & Dragons, and soak them in there. And the fact that there are so many people that like grew up playing this kind of stuff that are now in positions of creative authority, and keep that in mind, creative authority and media making, they're going to start greenlighting shit that they feel nostalgic about. That's why we have 80s nostalgia. And as much as we hate 80s nostalgia, 80s nostalgia is very much responsible for what we're experiencing right now. So that is my thought. And I think with that, we can call this the end of the podcast. And I want to know, well, we all want to know exactly what you guys think down in the comments. Also like, comment, subscribe, watch all our shit, please. (laughs) Anyway, this has been the return of the movie. Hey, Ben here. This video took a little bit longer to edit than normal, so our schedule has been a little bit thrown off. However, we should be back to normal videos after this. Regardless, if you enjoyed it, go ahead, tell your friends, and leave us a review on any of your podcasting apps. Bye-bye.